extraordinary, ordinary Christian life. We, we've been thinking about what does it mean to be an ordinary Christian? What does it mean to be ordinary, to have the things that all Christians have, and yet to be extraordinary? That, that somehow the things that all Christians have are mind-boggling. You know, we look to introduce this at the life of William Borden, and we say, look at this man who gave up his fortune, who decided to turn down everything that he had to move to China to reach the Muslims in northern China, stops in Egypt, and dies there. You say, can you imagine the kind of faith that it would take to have that kind of life where you would in your Bible when you realized you were going to die in Egypt far away from everyone that you had ever known to write in the back of your Bible, no regrets. However, as Christians, we have access to that same kind of power. We have access to that same kind of life because what enabled William Borden to live his life, what enabled the Apostle Paul to live his life, what enabled all these different people to live the extraordinary lives that they lived was not anything hard-baked into them. It was the Holy Spirit living inside of them. And if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, then your ordinary Christian life can be extraordinary. You do not have to move to Africa to change the world. You don't have to do anything except live the life that God's laid out for you in his word. We looked last week at worship, but today we're going to look at learning. See, the ordinary, extraordinary Christian learns the word of God. And I want to stop there for just a moment to kind of wrap our minds around that. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, that's page 1010. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bibles provided, we will also have it up on the screen. But to give you a glimpse of what the Bible is like. Last week we talked about worship. We talked about you wouldn't have the chance to go waltzing into the White House and say, Mr. President, I'd like to have a sit-down dinner with you. You'd You'd never be able to have that kind of intimacy with the President of the United States, but you can easily have it with the God of the universe. Now, when you turn 100, the President will call and wish you happy birthday. Now, I don't care who the president is. I don't care if it's the president that you have hated the most. When they call and wish you happy birthday, it's a big deal that the president of the United States wants to talk to you. You imagine if they wrote you a letter. Imagine if if you went to your mailbox and you said, okay, credit card bill, uh, advertisement, my dentist reminding me to come in for my annual every four years checkup, whatever it is that you get in the mail. And then you see a handwritten note, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And you say, well, I'll look at that later, too. Just keep going. (laughs) If the president wrote you a letter, you would take a look at it. So I want you to imagine the God of the universe goes through a lot of trouble. He picks over 40 flawed men, moves them with his spirit, to write down his perfect word in three languages on at least two continents over a period of about 1,500 years. Then he inspires and leads his churches to assemble it. Then at the proper time, he lays it on the hearts of the right people and develops the right skills and the right people to translate it into the English language so that you can read it. 
God went through an awful lot of trouble to send you this letter. And you get to your mailbox, and you're like, okay, dentist, credit card statement, letter from God. Can you imagine? We get the opportunity to do something extraordinary. God has something to say to us. And if you didn't grow up knowing that, if that was brand new news to you, that would be news. But we're so comfortable with it that we don't realize what a wonderful, wonderful thing it is. Now, there's two ways that we can look at this. I told you we're going to look at some things of the ordinary, extraordinary, Christian, extraordinary, ordinary Christian life before Christmas and some after. After Christmas, we're going to have a whole week on uh, how to study the Bible for yourself and how you can go and how you can understand the Bible on your own and study it and feast on the Word of God. Today, that's not what we're talking about. Today, we're talking about growing together, how we come together. One reason we assemble together is to worship, but another reason we assemble together is because God has set up the church as the pillar and the ground of truth to teach you the Word of God. So Sunday mornings, we have some of that. We have some education here. Sunday mornings, though, the primary thing is worship, right? We get white hot so that we carry our worship with us through the week. Uh, Sunday school and Sunday nights uh, are more geared towards an educational type thing. You know, if you've ever been here on a Sunday night, uh, we get into a lot of depth. You know, I get my iPad up here and scribble on the screen, and we look at word by word by word by word through books of the Bible. We don't skip any words. We do them all and uh, study in depth. And so if you've never been here on a Sunday night, I encourage you to do that so that we can learn together. But I'm getting the heart before the course. First, I've got to convince you that learning is an important thing to do. So in Ephesians chapter 4, I want you to see the way that God set up the church. And he gave some, Ephesians chapter 4, I mean, verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. God gave people as gifts to the church. He started out, he gave the apostles as gifts to the church. He gave gifts to men. That's an extremely interesting study is uh, Paul's use of that psalm here. But he, Jesus, went up to heaven, or he came down from heaven, he went up again and gave gifts to men. And the gifts that he gave us were first the apostles. Without the apostles, you wouldn't have the Bible to start with. Without the apostles going out and taking the initial word of God out, we wouldn't have the Bible. So he gave the apostles to us. We have the apostles in the form, not of living apostles today. The Bible says that an apostle was someone who saw the risen Jesus and was personally commissioned by him. So we don't have apostles in the technical sense today, um, but we have them. Because every time you've ever read the book of Ephesians... You were reading the inspired words of the Apostle Paul. If you read the book of John, you read the inspired words of the Apostle John. God gave the apostles to you. God raised these men up, had them born in the right time, in the right place, under the right circumstances, so they could write the words of God to you. God gave them as a gift to you. First apostles and then prophets. Uh, some Luke and Mark were not apostles. But they were prophets. They spoke on behalf of God. Um, the author of Hebrews, we don't know for sure who the author of Hebrews was, but he was a prophet. He spoke on behalf of God. So we have these things reserved in the New Testament. Then he gave, look at this, um, evangelists. He gave people to carry out the gospel, to take the gospel places where it had never been. Evangelist means good news proclaimer. 
You came to know God through someone who was doing the work of an evangelist. Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Uh, Timothy was also a pastor teacher. There are some people who were apparently just evangelists. Philip was a deacon and an evangelist. People who were specially gifted by God and then given by God as gifts to the church to take the gospel out. You were not saved because an angel came down from heaven and whispered into your ear. God could have done it that way if he wanted to, but he didn't. He entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, the flip side to that, the negative side, is that if you don't tell someone about Jesus, then it's not just going to fall into their ear. We've got a responsibility. So he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Um, here, of course, he, it's not, it's, and some pastors and teachers. So it's one category of person, the pastor teacher. Now, that's not to say he didn't give some people who are teachers but not pastors, but here what he's talking about is the roles in the church, and what he means is he gave some to serve as pastor teachers. This is not uh, necessarily an office. Um, here he's, he's talking about giftings. An evangelist is not an office. You're not ordained as an evangelist. A pastor teacher can be an office, but it's also a gifting. So um, Brother Moons, for example, is a pastor teacher. He's not... Uh, in an official office in our church, but he's still God's gift to our church as a pastor teacher because that's what God made him and that's what God put him here as. If you're here, it's because God gave you to this church. And when God gave you to this church, he had a certain role for you. And here he describes some. So the role of the pastor is, of course, to shepherd the flock and also to teach the flock. So um, God gave me to this church for the purpose of shepherding and teaching you. That's my primary role. Other things we do, you know, print bulletins and fold little papers and fix the jam, paper jams in the copier and all those wonderful spiritual things, uh, figure out how to get our social media and websites and stuff working correctly. Those are all fantastic, important jobs, but they are not as important. See, and you know, you talk uh, visitation and counseling and different things are all things that I enjoy doing, but nothing is as important or as God-empowered as the preaching and teaching of his word. That's my responsibility is to come and shepherd you and to teach you the word of God. Now, that, so that's my responsibility. Now, why? That's kind of an important question, isn't it? Because a lot of people have got a confused idea about what the role of the pastor is. I do not impugn this on any of you. But I know some people who say, well, you know, I'm not going to witness to anybody. That's what we pay the pastor to do. I don't need to pray. I give my tithe. You know, we pay the pastor to pray. Can you imagine, you know, it, it, it would be like going to a restaurant and they bring out your plate to you and you just look at it. And they say, well, what's wrong? They say, well, I, can't, I paid this restaurant. Why do I need to eat too? That's not what you paid the restaurant to do. You didn't pay the restaurant to eat for you. You paid the restaurant to bring you the food, to prepare the food for you. And so when we think about that, Paul here is going to make very clear, what did God give these people to the church for? Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. Okay? God gave these people to the church for the purpose of making you mature, of teaching you. Now, what's the point of making you mature? For the work of the ministry. 
So here's a really interesting thing. We talk about pastors going into the ministry and different things, and I really wish that we wouldn't because everyone is in the ministry of God. Everyone is in the service of God. My job is to teach you to make you mature so you can do the work of ministry. That's what it says here. It says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry. In Greek, it's a little clearer than it is in English. You know, in King James English, they just kind of put commas everywhere, and that confuses us sometimes. But in Greek, it's very clear. He says, the purpose, God gave these gifts. These gifts have the responsibility of equipping the saints. The saints are equipped to do the work of ministry. The work of ministry is for the edification of the body of Christ, to build up the body. That's incredible. You want to talk about extraordinary... God's presence on earth is built up by the things that he equips you to do. His body is edified, is built up by the work of ministry that he has entrusted to you. That means lots of different things. One thing it means is that lost people are saved and then added into his body because of the work that he has entrusted you to do. That is extraordinary. Saved people are encouraged and built up and taught by the work that you do. You make the body of Christ on earth, this church is uh, Jesus' body in this community, you make this body more like Jesus through the work that you do. When you're here, when you're doing what God's called you to do, when you're learning to be equipped and then doing that work of ministry, you are literally making a clearer picture of Jesus for people in this community to see, for the building up, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's extraordinary. But it's a chain. And that chain means that if the saints are not perfected, if the saints do not reach maturity, they are not equipped to do the work of ministry. If they're not equipped to do the work of ministry, the body of Christ does not get built up the way that it was intended to. A Christian who knows a little is very, very dangerous for the cause of Christ. I had a, an acquaintance in college, I don't know, friend is the right word, who I was having a discussion with one day, and at one point he explained to me that he knew what he was talking about because he had an associate's degree in philosophy from San Jack. Now, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, and I don't know where that is proven more than with somebody with an associate's degree in philosophy. It's uh, all, the king, his, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And two years of going to college for philosophy, he was just basically able to learn that he didn't know anything. And they just kind of left him there. Which I was good. I wish he had taken that more to heart. But he, he has an associate's degree in philosophy, and he thinks he knows it. Some of you have got friends and family who watch uh, medical TV shows and think that they're doctors. (laughs) You know, you you say, you know, I've got this uh, runny nose and I just, uh, and my my ear itches. You say, well, you know, those are all symptoms of lupus. I think you're dying. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) You've got friends like that who think they're experts. Some of them, you know... um, can be kind of frustrating, you know. You say, you know, well, my my car's not getting the gas mileage that it used to. They say, well, let me come over and help you with that. No, that's fine. (laughs) Um, There's, uh, you know, 
We all know people that are self-taught master electricians. Whatever you're doing, they don't know exactly how to do it, but they know you're doing it wrong. And when you've got somebody who knows what they're doing, that can be really grating, can't it? You imagine how dangerous it is, somebody with a little bit of knowledge. Uh, I will give that story, one of my first jobs. Um, I was just doing busy work around somebody. I was, then they said, here, go put this ceiling fan up. Well, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And so I knew how to do it. I'd done it before, right? But when I put it together, I was not very careful, and the ground wire did not go where the ground wire was supposed to go. And so the fan went, and then it didn't go. I had, and then I took it apart to figure out what had happened. I had pinched it. I had pinched the ground wire in the casing when I screwed the casing shut. You know, I was like, well, I'm not going to hand tighten this. I'm just going to get a drill. What are these lazy people doing? Closed it up, pinched it off, and this is a case where a little knowledge was a dangerous thing. In this case, it messed up a ceiling fan. And then the next day, I had to put up another ceiling fan. But when you've got somebody who knows just a little bit about the Bible, they can cause some people a lot of trouble, a lot of heartache. Have you ever heard anybody misquote the Bible? You sure have. Or, you know, you ever heard somebody say, judge not, lest ye be judged? Well, that's just fantastic. You know, that's true. That's in the Bible. Because then Jesus says to first remove the log that's in your own eye and then remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. To judge not, lest ye be judged, doesn't mean that we never help each other. doesn't mean that I say, hey, I think you're heading in for some trouble. It means don't be a hypocrite. But a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Ever heard somebody quote the Bible verse, the Lord helps those who help themselves? Nope. Not in there. But a lot of people get a lot of confusion. So when you've got somebody who gives ungodly counsel that sounds godly, you got the blind leading the blind, what did Jesus say happens when the blind lead into the blind? They both fall into the ditch. It is your responsibility as an agent of the building up of the body of Christ to be equipped. If somebody was building a building, oh, I've got a perfect example. Let's say you're building a fellowship hall. About yay big, right? And you lay out the uh, Romex, and you don't put conduit on it, and then you just lay the ceiling on top of it, the, the roof on top of it, I mean. Later on, when some group, you know, hypothetically, comes and puts a metal roof on your building, a screw goes through one of those, and the lights go out in half of your fellowship hall, and everybody's left there scratching their heads, trying to figure out what in the world happened. When you do something halfway right, you cause a lot more problems down the road. As a Christian, you've got a responsibility to study the Word of God. And the more you study the Word of God, the more you will know what you don't know. Some of it, you know, some people think, yeah, I really understand that. And when somebody tells me they understand some passages of Scripture, I just get really nervous about them. In general, you know, they say. I'm just, if, if you tell me that you are really comfortable, for example, with the way that Paul uses this psalm earlier in the chapter... 
then I'm going to say that you just haven't paid very much attention because it is extremely sophisticated. But a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. So as a Christian, you would not want somebody building your fellowship hall with a little bit of sloppy knowledge. So why would you build up the body of Christ with a little bit of sloppy knowledge? Here's one of my pet peeves. Um, You go to the vacation Bible school seminars and stuff, and they say, if you can read a book, you can be a teacher. (laughs) Now, if you want to teach kindergartners, Colleen taught kindergarten, and Colleen taught kindergartners that, uh, you know, five and six makes 11, things like that. And she went to school for four years and then was in a supervised internship for a year. And it's very important, those early foundational things. However, if you get confused about addition in kindergarten, they'll straighten you out in first grade or second grade or third grade. If you've got somebody who thinks that they can teach the word of God but doesn't read it themselves and doesn't study it themselves, you are setting somebody up for a huge disaster. It's annoying when somebody doesn't know how to add, when you're trying to make change, you know, with a cashier that doesn't know how to add. That's frustrating. But when somebody doesn't know the basic principles of the scriptures, it's catastrophic. The ordinary, extraordinary Christian life means that God has written a letter to you. He expects you to read it. So he says, the whole, whole outline here that the rest of the section falls under is that God gave people to the church for the purpose of the maturing of the saints to do the work of ministry so the body of Christ could be edified. Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He says, the purpose of all of these things is that we could come together as a church, be unified together, know God, and grow to maturity until we are a full-grown picture of Jesus. That's the purpose of what goes on. That we could be built up, that we could be the fullness of Christ, that we could accurately represent Jesus to the people here. That's powerful. Now, how many churches accurately represent Jesus today? There's not a lot of maturity. And you know, of course, we don't say anyone is ever perfect. No one person is ever a perfect model of Jesus. But as a church, bringing our different gifts together, Paul says here in Ephesians that we can grow up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is powerful. So we learn to do. We learn to build. We learn to accomplish. What's the danger if we don't? Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more carried, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Some Christians are very gullible. I mean that in the nicest way possible. But there are a lot of people who just believe the last thing that they heard. I mean, you know people like that. You know the decision that they're going to make is based on whoever talked to them last. They agree with whoever's in the room. Whoever's in the room last is the one that they agree with. That's gullibility. 
Some Christians feel very firmly about something until they hear somebody else say something. And they just kind of bounce around back and forth all over the place. I have a friend who is a pastor who I was talking to the other day with some other pastors at the state meeting. And he said, you know, I believe, I'll teach that while I'm at this church because that's the way that the pastor before me uh, believed. But if I get called to a different church and they don't believe this, then I'll just, you know, I'll just adjust. Huh. I don't know about you, but that was concerning to me. Now, this was not a central issue. It wasn't the deity of Christ or salvation by faith through grace. But my point is, if you're not grounded enough to speak from your own conscience, you shouldn't speak at all. It was a secondary matter. It was something that if he had held the opposite position of me, we could still be friends, we could still work together. But the fact that he says, I'm just going to kind of go with whatever this church wants to do, that made me very, very uncomfortable. (laughs) But he has been a Christian for a relatively short period of time became an associate pastor of a, someone who is very um, pragmatic as far as their approach to ministry, less about doctrine and more about what works. And then he moved into a senior pastor spot without ever really getting any kind of education or anybody really challenging him on some of these deeper doctrinal things. So he just says, whatever works. The wind blows this way, I'll go this way. The wind blows this way, I'll go this way. Now, if that could happen to a pastor, how easy is that for that to happen to the rest of us? How easy is it for somebody who doesn't know the Bible? You hear something else? Okay, I think I'll believe this now. You hear something else? Oh, I think I'll believe this now. If we're immature, we are tossed about by every changing wind of doctrine. Some of it's not important, you know. Today, you believe that Jesus was, uh, well, so you believe Jesus was crucified and uh, was crucified on a Friday. Next week, you believe it was a Thursday. The next week, you believe it was a Wednesday. Then you're back to Friday again. You just circle around. That's, That's pretty harmless, you know. I don't really care much about any of those things. But if you're not grounded, and so today you believe that once someone's saved, they're always saved. Next week you believe that, you know, you can lose your salvation if you deny the faith. The next week you believe you can lose your salvation if you, you know, misbehave. The next week you believe that really what is salvation anyway? Just depends on who you're with. That's dangerous. I would much rather you disagree with me on something with character than just be blown around. But I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said to him, I gave an example, and this one's not a pastor. I, gave, I, I challenged him on something, and I didn't disagree with him. But I was challenging him to test out something. And as soon as I challenged him, he changed his mind. That ought to make you nervous. And I'm talking about other people. My question now is if you look at yourself, how firmly do you have to hold on to what you believe? You want to know why it is that two out of three uh, kids who go to college lose their faith in college? Well, they were strong Christians 
when they were surrounded by other strong Christians, right? When the wind was blowing this way, they said, yeah, that sounds good. But there was never any roots. There was never any maturity. So now when they're surrounded by people who say, oh, that's not true, oh, they blow this way. What a disservice happens to us when we're moved this way and that way and all over the place. But we are to be rooted and grounded in maturity. So we won't be tossed to and fro and carried with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cutting craftiness, whereby they lay and wait to deceive. But what happens is we want to believe so badly sometimes. You know, somebody comes on the TV and they say, look, if you send me $100, I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to heal you. Guaranteed. You may know better. You may know that God is not anybody's genie, that God answers everybody's prayers, that this person has no special insight with God, that you can pray without sending them any money. You may know that. But when you or somebody you love is sick and they come with that cunning and sleight of hand and push you where you hurt, you can crumble if you're not deeply grounded in the word of God. If what you believe is based on your feelings and based on the people around you, then it will be no stronger than your feelings or the people around you. If you are worked up into feeling a certain way about God, the next time you meet a slicker salesman, you'll feel a different way. Anything I can talk you into, someone else can talk you out of. Isn't that right? If I'm not there... I don't know if any of you have ever gone from store to store shopping around for something. But you go to one mattress store and you're convinced they've got the best prices, the best mattress. You go to a different mattress store, you're convinced they've got the best price, the best mattress. You just bounce around. Because you don't know. It is one thing to do that with a mattress. It is a different thing to do that with the word of God. And I'm, I'm going to get outside of my main point here for just a second. I think that we set people up for this. And one thing, while I'm talking about a pastor who's like this, I feel like we set pastors up for this. Because in ordination, um, we just ask a series of really simple questions. You know, what do you believe about the Trinity? What do you believe about this and that? And you just get a simple answer, and you move on. However... In the requirements for a pastor, only one of them is about teaching in 1 Timothy and Titus. The rest of them are all about character. So when you're considering ordaining somebody, a better question might be, how are you going to protect your marriage if you get into a compromising situation? What are the safeguards you're going to put up? How are you going to, who are you going to be willing to marry and who are you not going to be willing to marry? You know, things like that. Think through, what are the implications? What are your guardrails? Well, you know, nobody asked me those things. I've thought about them, but nobody asked me. And I know people who haven't thought about them. You know, there are people that I won't marry. <laughs> Sorry. But it's because, but I know people who say, well, you know, I'm not really comfortable with it. And then when they're in the room with the people asking to marry them, they go this way. Or this way. The changing winds of doctrine. You know, when you see people changing their beliefs about what the scripture says, 
The Bible has not changed. So what's changed? The direction the wind is blowing. Truth is not a majority vote. We'll see that in a second. But here's what we have. He says, we don't want to be children blown back and forth. What do we have? Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. See, the job of the pastor, the job of the apostles and prophets and evangelists was always to speak the truth in love. The work of the ministry that all Christians are called to do is to speak the truth in love. Now, I don't know about you, but I know people who fall on opposite extremes of that spectrum. I know people who speak in quote-unquote love, who just always tell people whatever they want to hear. Well, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about that. That's not love. That's destructive. If you overlook something, a path that somebody's on that is going to destroy them, you are not their friend. If I see you, you know, let's say that I know somebody, a simple example, who is uh, abusing drugs or alcohol. I say, look, you are on the road to a crash. If I say all love, oh, you know, you just, you do you. Whatever makes you happy. I don't really care about that. If I do all truth, you know, I can't believe you're so stupid. At your funeral, I hope they have the guts to say that you did this to yourself, that I'm not heard. All truth and I'm not heard, all love I'm not worth hearing. But speaking the truth in love, real love and real truth, I say, look, I care about you. And because I care about you, I am worried about this path that you're on. But that requires maturity. That requires knowledge. I have to know right from wrong. I have to know truth from error for me to be able to tell you when you're outside the, outside the boundaries. So you have to have both. So the extraordinary, ordinary Christian has the power to speak the truth in love because we know the word of God. Speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. That pressure, that maturity growing. If you avoid everything that's uncomfortable, you never grow. Isn't that right? You feel miserable for a kid when they're going through a growth spurt. Say, oh, I just, you know, they just hurt all over but it's worth it to grow. When you've got a baby who's teething, they cry and cry and cry. But the teeth have got to come in. You've got a Christian who is immature, an infant that needs to grow up. From the moment you're saved until the moment you die, there are some hard conversations some people are going to have to have with you. If you say, I'm going to be a Lone Ranger Christian, you know, I'm just going to go, I'm going to sit at home and watch TV. Nobody ever has those conversations with you, do they? That's what some people want. And we hide that. We say, well, I don't want to be judged. Well, we have to understand that there's a difference, isn't there? All truth 
from somebody who's hypocritical and self-righteous is judging you. But when you've got the kind of relationships where people can speak the truth in love to you, can say the hard things, but say it from the right heart, you can learn and you can be transformed. That's the extraordinary, ordinary Christian life. And we've got to do that as a community. That's one reason that I say that Sunday mornings are not the ideal time for this. Sunday nights, we can have some discussion. Sunday school, we have some discussion. Monday nights, they do the Faith Bible Institute, and they talk, and they interact, and they have this this shaping. If you're never shaped in that kind of a way of serious, hard study of the Bible where you can ask questions, where you can be challenged, where you can challenge, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Now, again, I don't want to imply this is just in church. Like I said, we're going to talk next month about studying the Bible on your own. I want to make sure that we know that one of the most important places this happens is with your family. If you, don't, if you only talk about the football scores and what's on TV with your family and you never talk about the Bible, you never talk about God, then you are missing one of the most important places for discipleship, for being trained up into maturity in the body of Christ. Don't want to exclude any of those things. But I also want you to know, you need community. You need interaction. The church is not dinner and a show, and sometimes no dinner. It's where we come together as a community to be shaped into the image of Christ. This is verse 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth. Look at this, the body fitly joined together. This body was put together by the master builder. God put this body together, compacted by that which every joint supplieth. You are a part of the body. You are a part of the function of the body if you're a part of this church. God put you here and what you supply is important according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. You see, the, see what we went? We, we're back to where we started, aren't we? God gave the pastor teachers and different people to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, that the body would edify itself that we as a church would build up each other, that we as a church would strengthen one another and encourage one another and speak the truth in love and teach one another and be taught that as we understand the Bible more, we grow stronger at discerning truth from error. And as we do that, we can be challenged in the areas where we're weak. If the Bible has never changed your mind on anything, you are not reading the Bible. You may be looking at it, I know people who read the Bible, and they read a couple chapters, and you say, well, what was that about? Well, I don't know, but I did my Bible reading for the day. Check. But the purpose of us coming together is to be taught the Word of God so you can be equipped, so then you can use the Word of God to minister to one another. And I, so I want to be clear. As a pastor, I'm still part of the body. So I still do these things, too, just not as the pastor. As the pastor, I teach. As a member of this church, we encourage one another and strengthen one another and hold each other accountable. I hope that makes sense. I hope that's clear. And I don't want to exempt myself from that like I'm separate. Because we're all priests, aren't we? The Bible is the priesthood of all believers. We all have an equal say in what we do here. You have the Holy Spirit just as much as I do. I do not have a special red phone to God in the office. What I do have in the office is a lot of books so that I can teach and preach the Word of God. So that we can be built up together. 
So I challenged you this morning. Where do you come in truth and error? Are you an immature Christian where you're bounced back and forth and back and forth? Because then you need to be grounded. But more importantly, and we didn't have time to get to it, but he says, you have not so learned Christ. Verse 20. Here's what I... uh, If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. What I want to make clear to you is that I have a responsibility to give you the word of God. But as I said before, whatever I can talk you into, someone else can talk you out of. The only way that the Bible ever sinks deeper than about this far is if Christ is living inside of you, teaching it to you. If you say, well, I read the Bible, it just doesn't sink in. You say, you know, I try to learn, I just can't. And my question for you is, do you know that you know Jesus? If not, then it's so important for you to turn from your sin and place your trust in him so that you can know him, so you can worship him. You say, this life just seems so far out of reach for me. If you have Jesus, it's not. If you recognize that he died for you, that he came to break the power of sin in your life, that he died in your place for all the things that you've done wrong, And then, as the conquering king, he beat death and rose again, taking away your sin debt, but also breaking the power of sin over you so you can be taught this new way of living, so you can live out this new way of living. My challenge to you this morning is then, where are you? Are you a mature Christian? That's great. Keep doing what you're doing. Are you an immature Christian? Okay. Where can we get you into some circles where you can be learning the word of God and you can be transformed? Are you not a Christian at all? then what is keeping you this morning from coming and kneeling before the cross and saying, God, I turn from my sin and I trust in you? If you'd stand, our musicians are going to come forward. We're going to have a hymn of invitation. Word of God. And uh, steady as you